This morning, I'm excited about beginning a new sermon series, Music That Changed the World. You know, there's no doubt about it that music speaks to our soul in a way that is just different from spoken language. I, I love the songs that we're singing this morning. I mean, they can just stir and take you back to a certain time. I could hear the first few notes and I could have been singing the songs right with them. I mean, you can just feel it. It's those things that you remember when, when you were a child, whether you were young or a teenager, 20 years, 40 years, 60 years later, you can still sing those songs that you learned in your life. We know that as people grow older and when they wind up having uh, uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, that how often they can't speak and yet they might be able to sit down and sing a hymn. Music is just different. It's one of the ways that God can speak to your soul when the spoken word maybe really isn't enough. So what we did is we came up with this idea, actually more than a year ago now, to, to have a sermon series, Music That Changed the World. It's really music that changes our world. And, and what we want to do is try to look at some of these themes that music speaks to our soul. And if you notice today, all of these songs are kind of saying to you, you're not alone. You're not alone in the difficult moments that someone is there. God is there. Well, we're going to look at different themes every single week. Next week, we're going to wind up looking, we shall overcome, and all the issues that go with that. I think we're going to have a, have a good time with that one. But we started planning this more than a year ago. And what it was, was we started choosing all of these songs a year ago. We, we try to plan a sermon series a year in advance. I can tell you every single sermon series that's going to be going on between now and Christmas. So today was already planned and already thought out. Today, what I wanted us to focus on was the song by Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. It's just an incredible song. It was written in 1969 by Paul Simon it turned out that it was sung by Art Garfunkel in 1970. And when it came out, it went to number one on the U.S. charts, number one in U.K., number one in Canada, number one in France, number one in New Zealand. It was this huge hit around the world. Now, because I was oh, 16, 17 years old when it came out, and I could sing it, I kind of wondered about it, and so I started doing a little survey with some of my millennial friends in their 20s and asked them, do you know Bridge Over Troubled Water? They said, yes. I talked about it with my greatest generation friends, people in their 80s, and they said, yes. So far, I've yet to find a person of any generation who did not know Bridge Over Troubled Water. It was so incredibly powerful, considered one of the best songs of the 20th century. At the 1971 Grammy Awards, it won six Grammy Awards, including Best Song of the Year and Best Record of the Year. It has gone on to be performed by 50 different artists. 50 different artists have cut their own rendition of this song. Everybody from Elvis to Aretha Franklin to Johnny Cash. And it's just because it kind of resonates, I think, with your soul. People understand, understand the message. Well, it was written originally in 1969, as I told you. 
And Paul Simon, in 1969, was kind of looking at his apartment window and looking back over the landscape of this past year and past decade. And what he was really looking at is how in 1968, there was the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Jr. There was tremendous racial tensions. We were still fighting Vietnam. It was easy for him to look out and say, when you're weary, feeling small, when tears fill your eyes, because that's where so many of us were, as the 60s came to an end and the 70s began. But it's really not just something that was in that period of time. That is true for all generations and all decades. We've all been there. We all know what it means to feel weary, to feel small, for tears to fill your eyes. We've been there. It resonates. That's why when Paul Simon wrote the song, he didn't have it played on a guitar. Instead, he had it played and composed it to go with a piano, just like you were hearing it. It went with a piano because it could be more of a, of a gospel song. Because it was a gospel song that actually gave him the key line and inspired him to write this song. Whenever he used to come home in those days, he liked putting on gospel music. And one of the records that he enjoyed putting on was Swan Silvertones. Now, you may not have heard of Swan Silvertones. It was an African-American group back in the 1950s. And one of their most popular songs was, Mary, Don't You Weep. Mary, Don't You Weep. It was all about Mary coming to the garden and having to confront the death of Jesus and this empty tomb and believing that Jesus' body had been stolen away. And so they were singing, Mary, don't you weep. Don't you hear him speak your name? Maybe we need to speak louder. Maybe we need to help him. Because Mary, don't you hear him? How many times do you have to speak your name? Don't weep, Mary. Tell Martha not to moan. Don't you remember how God took the Pharaoh and threw him in the deep sea and God set his people free? Jesus said, I'll be a bridge over deep water if you believe in me. That was the line out of the song that Paul Simon took and with his inspiration to change it from I'll be a bridge over deep water if you trust in me to bridge over troubled water I will lay me down. It's fascinating, this song was not a counterculture song like we were so used to in the 60s. It wasn't some in-your-face song by Led Zeppelin or by Cream, heavy metal. No, it really was an old-fashioned song, an old-fashioned message to a hippie generation. It was actually a Baptist hymn. To have a message that transcended all times for all those years that everybody needs to hear because we've all been at those moments when you feel weary, small, and tears fill your eyes.
It is Christ who comes to dry them all. To be a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. It's what Mary was about to learn when she came to the garden. She came early in the morning, before the sun's first light. She got there and she was worried who would roll the stone away. Didn't need to worry about that. It was already rolled away, but the tomb was empty. And she ran to go tell Peter and John and the disciples, and it was John and Peter that ran back to the tomb. And then they left and Mary stayed behind, just slumped there at the opening of the tomb, weeping. And a presence came near and said, Why are you weeping? And Mary turned, thinking it was the gardener, and said, If you've taken his body, tell me, I will go get it. And he simply said, Mary. Mary. And when he spoke her name, when she heard, it would change her world. From one of grief to one of hope, from an ending to a new beginning, that moment in the garden, Jesus would become a bridge over troubled water, a new beginning. I believe that's what he does for each of us. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I really just want to say two things. First of all, it is when you and I feel afraid, when we feel that we're not in control, that we need a bridge over troubled water. You know, you and I live with the illusion that we're in control. We're not. Oh, we need to do all that we can, and we have impact, but we're really not in control. And when things happen that are more powerful than you, and you can't control them, we become afraid, and when we become afraid, well, that's when we need a word for our soul. Maybe it's not a spoken word. Maybe it's that music that helps you to know you're not alone. You don't have to be afraid. If you've been coming back in December, you heard me talking about Chip and Joanna Gaines. Really a neat couple. I've never met them personally, but right now they're on HGTV on a show called Fixer Rupper. If you've seen it, it's all about how they go out and find somebody who wants a, a home and they find an old rundown home and buy it. And then the couple can't see it. They fix it up and there's a big reveal. It's a reality TV show that's just positive and wholesome. They live in Waco, Texas. And, you know, you look at their life, and they've now bought these things called the silos, and they've turned those into businesses, and they got shops. And, I mean, life is just booming. It all looks so wonderful. But they wrote a book entitled The Magnolia Story so they could tell you the other side of the story. The life isn't always just good and easy. No, it talks about their own insecurities and their own struggles. And they go back and they tell the story of how you know, they had been working, learning how to flip a house here and a house there, and then two at a time and four at a time and six at a time. And so they decided, let's go for the big enchilada, put all our eggs in one basket, and let's develop a whole subdivision. 38 homes, magnolia villas. They felt the time was right, and so Joanna decided to do all the designing, and Chip was putting all the infrastructure in, and they got this loan, a line of credit at the bank, and they set to work. And they were then putting in all the streets and the curbs and all the sewers. 
And all this was happening around 2008, 2009, as the economy crashed. And the housing market that crashed in Miami and Phoenix and Las Vegas, it became finally a housing market that crashed in Waco, Texas. And here they were, halfway drawn on this line of credit, having gotten in the infrastructure, when one day the bank called Chip and said, Chip, I got some bad news, but we're going to try to work with you now. It's not the way you want a conversation to start with your banker. It turned out that what happened was the federal government had stepped in and said, all banks have to have a certain amount of capital, and, and if you don't have that amount of capital to the loans, then you've got to stop making loans right now. And so even though he had this money, that, this loan, and he should have had enough to build it, they said, we can't lend you any more money. Well, now, if you got the infrastructure in but no houses, and now they won't lend you any money to build the houses to sell to pay back the loan, you're dead. You're bankrupt. It's over. Talk about fear. Not in control. You didn't cause the problem, but it is yours. He and Joanna are people of great faith, and they just started praying that God would show them the way. They work so very hard. It didn't mean you sit back. It meant you work even harder. And they worked and they worked and they were selling everything that they had, finding everything they could to throw at the project. In the end, they would ultimately sell their home and take their equity and throw at it and move in with her parents. No, they're willing to do whatever it took. But at this point, as they're trying to figure it out, they came up to a moment where they looked at the bills and they realized in less than 30 days they owed $100,000. And they'd already thrown in everything they had. And they knew they couldn't make it. And Chip had the idea there was a couple of friends who might be wanting to be investors in something like this. He went to them and said, would you take 50 and you take 50? One of them said, no way, I don't understand this. It was two days later that the other person called him back and said, let's go look at the property. And he and his wife showed up and they went and they looked and he said, you know, we've been praying about it and we feel like we want to help. So here's a check for 100000 When you can pay it back, pay it back. If you can't, we understand. Here's 100000 Try. You're kidding. They were able to make those payments. And it was almost immediately after that, the newspaper called and said, we'd like to do a story on this project. We hear you're building a subdivision. Sounds really great in a good part of town. Would you mind? No, wouldn't mind. (laughs) They came out to the property and he pitched them the whole idea and gave them vision. and, And they ran it on the front page. Well, suddenly a few people started calling in when they saw the article. One was a lawyer and he said, tell me about it. And Chip told him about it. And he said, come see me. Bring a contract. He was encouraged, but not thrilled. He knows how this happens. You come in, you hand a lawyer a contract. They've got to review the contract. Finally, they'll put earnest money down. And then you've got to go finally get interim financing. And I mean, it all takes a while. But he came in and he saw this lawyer. And he said, you know, my mom lives on a 40-acre farm. And she needs to move into town. She needs something different. This just sounds perfect. Which model do you think she needs? And Chip kind of described him and said, I think this one. How much is it? It's 176000 Well, Chip said he went to the restroom, and when he came back, 
the lawyer had signed the contract and had written out a personal check for 176000 and had paper-clipped it to the contract. He said, we had money to build a house. And when you get out there, and now you're building a house, and people can see you building a house, and there'd been all the publicity, well, it attracts attention, and other people come by. Well, I'd like to maybe buy a lot. I'd like to buy a house. And soon there was momentum. In the midst of this recession, Magnolia Villas began to take off. Just as it was starting to move forward like that is when the TV station called and said, we'd like to come out and think about doing a pilot project for a reality TV show. And it was also just about that time that then the lawyer called back. His mother loved her home. And he said, you know, we've got to sell her house. It's 40 acres. I know your kids have been loving coming out there. Have you ever thought about having a farm? I know you can't afford a loan, but I'd be happy to carry owner financing on it. And suddenly they were moving on to a farm where they had now a perfect project for a fixer-upper for this new TV show. And so all these things began to happen. But that was only after you think you're to the brink and today will be the day you have to declare bankruptcy and lose it all. But as they prayed and found strength not to quit, I want to read you what they said. Looking back on it now, all these life-changing things were right around the corner for us at that moment. We didn't know it. But if we had given up, if we had walked away, if we would have crumbled when we were at our lowest, we never would have made it around the corner to see all the blessings that were about to come. This was God's grace. I believe when we are at our lowest, it is when God comes as a bridge over troubled water. Not that everything is going to work out just so special and the best you could dream. That's not life. But I do believe in those moments, God does come to give you strength from beyond yourself, to give you peace so you have hope. And I believe God is the one then who brings those friends you never could have imagined those grace moments you could not have orchestrated, that I believe God gives you a future you had not anticipated. It is the promise of our faith. Mary, don't you weep. Martha, don't you moan. Don't you know I'll be the bridge over deep water if you trust in my name. Sometimes you feel so small and tears are in your eyes and we forget. Maybe it's music where God can speak to our soul and help us remember. So secondly, I believe it's whenever you lose a loved one to death whenever you confront death, that, that you need a bridge over troubled water. Because there's nothing that, that makes you feel so small, not in control, that makes you feel just so empty and full of tears, is when you lose somebody you love. 
And yet death is something that all of us have to confront. It is a part of life. Whether we like it or not, it is a part of life. And it's when you and I have our faith that we are able to confront that most difficult of moments in life when you lose somebody you love. And that's where you find that bridge over troubled waters. It was back in 1912, up in Pittman, New Jersey. There was a man, Austin Miles. It turned out that he was a pharmacist. And he had a hobby of photography. So he had this basement there. And there were no windows, but it's where he liked to go hang out. I guess you could say it was his man cave in 1912. But also was a man of great faith. And he talks about the day that he went down there, and he was there working, and he picked up his Bible. It turned out that his favorite passage was from John 20, the very passage that we were reading today. And so he just started reading through the passage about Mary coming to that garden so early in the morning and kneeling outside the tomb. And he said, I suddenly found that the room was becoming full of light. And I just felt like I was in Mary's presence. I could understand the grief that she was feeling. And I felt the presence of another one come up and say, why are you weeping? And I saw her turn and say, if you have taken him, tell me where you have laid him, and I will respond. I will get him. And the presence simply said, Mary. Mary. He said, I felt like I was there in that moment, and I felt the presence of Mary and of Jesus. And in that moment, he suddenly had this feeling come over him, and he went over and sat down at his desk, and he just began to write, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. He sat there and he wrote the words of the song in the garden. He said, I felt like it was just a gift. He went upstairs for dinner and he couldn't stop thinking about those words. And after dinner, he went over and sat on a desk and suddenly he started to write a tune. In a matter of a few minutes, he had the tune that went with the words. The song in the garden that has been sung for 105 years, the words were exactly the same and the tune is exactly the same as 105 years ago, composed all on one afternoon. And Austin Miles said, I really felt like it was, it was God speaking to me. But it was also God wanting to share the message that would speak to so many. I think to how many of us have we sung that hymn over and over and how many times I've heard it sung at a funeral as I've done them through 43 years. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. He walks with me and talks with me. He tells me that I am His own. 
Mary, don't you weep. Martha, don't you moan. I'll be your bridge over deep water if you trust in me. The moment comes for us all. In this last week, we've had three members of our family of faith die. Had three funerals in the midst of our sanctuary being torn up. Wonderful people from their mid-50s to their late-80s. People who've been a member of the church for a few years to 67 years. And whenever you're involved in all that kind of loss and special people, it makes you start thinking about life and death. Made me think about my mom. Coming up this April will be the fourth anniversary of her death. She died April the 16th, 2013. Some of you have heard me talk about my mom and maybe even heard me talk about her passing away. She was such an amazing lady. and I was one of those, I drew the lucky card. I had a neat mom, such a good lady. But the last eight and a half years of her life, mom had Alzheimer's. She went two years where she did not speak an intelligible word. And towards the end, she was just basically curled up. It's such a horrible disease. We had her in a special home. It truly was a home, a small place in Houston with other people who have Alzheimer's where it's a family environment. My brother and his wife live in Houston, could go by to see mom almost every day. Marsha and I would travel to Houston. But I remember that four years ago, my brother called and said, Bob, we really think mom might be starting down. He said, the doctors have looked at her. They don't think it's any time soon, but we really think we might be beginning the end. Marsh and I hopped on a plane and went down to Houston. And I expected fully that I'd go down and see mom and that this would be the last time we'd be there to say our goodbyes and we'd come home and we would wait until we heard the word. We got there that morning and went to this home and we pulled up and so was Ann Spears. She was a minister from down at First Methodist Church, a very good friend of mom's for decades and a friend of mine for decades and Marsh's. She was one of the pastors she would do, mom's funeral and dad's funeral. She came out that morning at the same time. We went in to see mom and we gathered around her bed and we told Jean's stories, just told the stories and we laughed and we cried and then Ann said a prayer, and she headed on back to church. And Marsh and I sat down beside Mom. We, we had all morning and afternoon. We sat down, and I, I held her hand, and I started to just stroke her hair. And I leaned in, and I whispered in her ear and said, Mom, I'm here. It's your son, Bob. Marsh is here. We love you. And then we just started talking. Gave me a chance just to tell her again what a special mom she was. How she'd bless my life and bless so many others. We'd been there less than an hour. And as I'm sitting there holding her hand and brushing her hair, suddenly I noticed this huge tear roll down her cheek. And a few moments later, her breathing became shallow. And Marcia said, Bob, I think she's going. We sat there and it was only a few more minutes and we knew that mom had stepped across that line that she had been born into the kingdom of heaven. And I got to tell you, honestly, I cried. 
not because I wanted her back. I wouldn't have asked her to stay in that state a minute longer. I cried because she was such a good mom. I was grateful she was released from this horrible disease, and I was grateful she was born into the kingdom of God because I knew my father would be waiting, and I knew her parents were waiting, and so many who loved her. That's the first time in my life I've really ever experienced gratitude and grief all in the same moment, not really understanding you can have both a sense of gratitude and grief and a sense of peace. It was a holy moment. It it wasn't one of panic. It wasn't one of fear. It was a beautiful moment. The truth of the matter is, I wanted to tarry. I didn't want it to end. And so we just sat there. There was no emergency. We didn't need to call the paramedics. We didn't need to call hospice. I just wanted to sit there. And there was such a beautiful, wonderful feeling just sitting there. We talked and we prayed. I thought of mom's life and how you know, she had such a good life and she accomplished so much. And yet she had such hard times and there were difficult moments. She never let it break her spirit because she was such a lady of faith. The good times, the hard times. Didn't break her. She knew how you make it through those moments. We sat there more than an hour before finally we said, we probably need to call hospice and the funeral home. I didn't want the moment to end. They finally came and took mom's body. My brother was on a job in India at that point. There was no other family in Houston. All the arrangements had been made there was no reason not to come back home to Oklahoma City. And so we left and came home. But I understood better the words. But he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. We all will have those moments. And whether it is when we confront death or the difficult moments in life, there will be times that you feel weary and small and tears will fill your eyes. But Christ will wipe them all a bridge over troubled water. I will lay me down. Sometimes we forget and we need some music to remind us. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.